Hi, it's Sunny. I'm coming at you by myself. Um, just a super quick disclaimer before this episode gets started. First, thank you all for tuning in. It means the absolute world to us, especially me. This is a huge accomplishment and I'm so proud of it. Second, we are busy people. I'm in my last semester of college. Verena helps her mom run a puppy rescue. We have very little free time. We do not have the luxury of having a podcast be our full-time jobs. So this podcast eventually, hopefully someday, will be a weekly thing. But for right now, don't have your expectations too high. It might just be a monthly thing. It might be an every couple months thing, just based on how busy our life gets. Um, With all that being said, thank you again. And here's the episode. Hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to You're Not Gonna Believe This, the podcast. Actually, the very first episode of You're Not Gonna Believe This, the podcast. I'm your host, Sunny Hendrickson, and typically I will be joined by my very dear friend, Verena Robinson, but she just had major eye surgery, like not even a week ago. So she's resting and recuperating and healing right now, and I was not going to bug her to record while she's blind and also in pain. So it's on me for the first episode, which heightens my anxiety a lot, but that's okay. So in the meantime, until she's feeling ready to get back into things, into my crazy idea of starting a podcast, it will just be me. You'll hear my beautiful voice every month at least. <laughs> Yikes. So like I said, This is You're Not Gonna Believe This, the podcast, where I talk about pretty much anything unbelievable. This has a heavy influence from a couple podcasts that I listen to religiously. First of being My Favorite Murder with Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. So shout out to those beautiful, wonderful ladies. So much inspiration is drawn from them. When I asked Verena to be my co-host, I said, will you be the Karen to my Georgia? So that's, there's that. And the other one is from Crime Junkie, another super great true crime podcast. Very different, but inspiration has been drawn from both of them. So if you hear any similarities, no, I'm not ripping them off. I have reference material and I am forming my own original content around said reference material. So you can thank my professor Hannah Copeland for that one. Shout out my audio class. All right, moving on. So today it's just going to be me. A couple housekeeping things before this particular episode, but it will probably pertain to all episodes. First of all, I will be preemptively marking all of the episodes as explicit. That doesn't necessarily mean every other word is going to be a curse word, mom. But just the nature of things in true crime and in pretty much anything unbelievable is explicit. There are crazy things that happen. There is horrendously messed up things that happen. And to tell the stories in the best possible way I can, I feel that it's not transparent to cut those things out or uh, minimize them. So just because it's marked as explicit does not mean your children cannot learn. If they had a PG-13 rating, that's probably what I would put on this podcast. Second order of business is to please bear with us as we go through pronunciation of names and places especially today's episode all of the names of the people and the places are of russian origin so bear with me i did my best i wrote out the phonetics of most of the names and places but i don't speak russian so i'm doing my best and there will probably be inconsistencies and incorrect pronunciations you know you can kindly correct me us, but please don't tell everyone you know that we're illiterate and we don't know how to pronounce things. 
Okay, and there's a couple other things specifically for this episode that I want to talk about. First of being, there's so much about what I'm going to talk about today that if I included everything, this episode would probably be four hours long. I highly encourage everyone to go research this further on their own. I have listed and linked all of the source material that I used. So I highly encourage everyone to go read up on it further if you're not satisfied or you want to read into sort of the conspiracy theories because there are always conspiracy theories. And the next thing is... Throughout the storytelling, I only refer to the people involved in this story by last name. So I'm going to take a quick minute. I just want to give them the recognition that they deserve. With that being said, the nine victims of the Dyatlov Pass incident of 1959. Igor Dyatlov, who was 23. Yuri Doroshenka, who was 21. Ludmila Dubinyana who was 20, Yuri Krivanyanchenka, who was 23, Alexander Kolyevatov, who was 24, Zinaida Kolmogorova, who was 22, Rostem Slobodin, who was 23, Nikolai Tibolbrinyo, who was 23, and finally, Alexander Zolotarov, who was 38. All right, with all of that said and taken care of, let me tell you about the Dyatlov Pass incident. The Dyatlov Pass incident is a decades-long mystery that resulted in the death of nine Soviet mountaineers in the northern Ural Mountains between the 1st and 2nd of February, 1959. A group of 10 members of the Urals Polytechnic Institute in Yekaterinburg, eight men and two women, was formed for a skiing and mountaineering expedition across the northern Urals in Sverdlovsk Oblast, Soviet Union. Each member was a highly experienced grade two mountaineer, and upon their return from this trip would have been receiving grade three certification, which at the time was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union. Also, just a real quick side note, a lot of these names and places have different names today, obviously. Russia is no longer the Soviet Union, but to keep with the story and from the sources that I've read, I'm going to be using the uh, previous names. So just a quick disclaimer. The route the Dyatlov group planned to take was designed to reach the far northern regions of Sverdlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lutsva River, and the proposed route was approved by the city commission. The goal of the expedition was for the group to reach Otortin, a mountain 10 kilometers north of the site where the incident occurred. The Dyatlov group undertook this route in February, which was estimated as a Category 3, meaning it was the most difficult time to traverse. On January 23, 1959, the Dyatlov group was issued their route book and they left the same day. The group arrived by train at Idvel, a town in the center of the northern province of Sverdlovsk Oblast, in the early morning hours of January 25, 1959. From there, the group took a truck to Vizhai, a small village which is the last inhabited settlement to the north, which is also the last place that they camped out before they started their journey. Two days later, January 27th, the group began their trek toward Gora Otorten. However, the next day, one member, Yuri Yudin, left the group due to knee and joint pain, which left him unable to continue the hike. The other nine hikers did continue on with the journey after 
Yuri Yudin left. And from the diaries and cameras found around their last campsite, the group's route has been tracked up to the day before the horrific incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a nearby wooded valley, they stashed surplus food and equipment they would use for the trip back. The next day, February 1st, the hikers began to move through the pass, but because of snowstorms and steadily decreasing visibility, the group lost their sense of direction and deviated west from their initial destination, which is believed to have been a campsite made on the opposite side of the pass. When the group realized their mistake, they decided to set up camp on the slope of Kolatsakol, which can be translated to Dead Mountain, which that's a red flag for me, but whatever, rather than move 1.5 kilometers downhill to a nearby forested area. And Yudin, after the fact, speculated that, quote, Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. Also, before I get too far into the story, Igor Dyatlov, he was pretty much the mastermind behind the whole trip. He was the one who drew up the plans and sort of spearheaded the expedition. Before embarking on the expedition, Dyatlov had agreed he would send a telegram back to their sports club as soon as the group returned to Vizhai, which is the uh, last little inhabited settlement to the north of Sverdlovsk Oblast. It was expected that this telegram would be sent no later than February 12th, but Dyatlov had told Yudin before Yudin left the group that he expected it to be longer. So February 12th came and went with no messages received, but because delays of a few days were common with these kind of expeditions, there was no immediate reaction. On February 20th, the traveler's relatives demanded a rescue operation and the head of the institute sent the first rescue groups, which consisted of volunteer students and teachers. Later, the army and military forces got involved and used planes and helicopters to help search for the group. Finally, on the 26th of February, the searchers found the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent on Kolatsakol Mountain. The campsite immediately baffled the search party. Mikhail Chauvrin, who was the student who found the tent, said, quote, The tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind, end quote. Investigators discovered that the tent had been cut open from the inside and nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks, a single shoe, or barefoot could be followed for about 500 meters to the edge of a nearby wood on the opposite side of the pass. After those 500 meters, though, they were covered with snow. At the forest's edge, beneath a large Siberian pine or a cedar tree, depending on what source you read, there's a couple discrepancies between sources, that searchers found visible remains of a small fire and the first two bodies of the group, those of Krivonyshenko and Doroshenko shoeless and dressed only in their underwear. Between the tree and the camp, searchers found three more corpses, Dyatlov, Kolmogrova, and Slobodin. Their bodies were found positioned in such a way that suggested they were attempting to return back to their tents. They were found at distances of 300, 480, and 630 meters respectively from the tree. It took more than two months when finally, on May 4th, the final four bodies were found. Dubininya, Kolovatov, Tiobo Brigno, and Zolotarov were found buried in a ravine beneath four meters of snow and 75 meters further into the woods from where the first two bodies were found. Legal inquest started immediately after the first five bodies were found, 
although nothing in the examination of those bodies suggested anything mysterious had happened. Their deaths were all concluded to be caused by hypothermia, but it was when examination began on the other four bodies, found in May, when the narrative shifted and seemingly unanswerable questions arose. Three members in the second group of bodies found had fatal injuries. Tiubo Brignol had major skull damage, and Dubinina and Zolotarov had major chest fractures. The injuries inflicted on these three raised even more questions, because these bodies had no external wounds that were associated with their bone fractures, which indicated they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. And according to Boris Vozrozdeni, the forensic expert who performed the autopsies, the force required to cause such damage would have been comparable to that of a car crash, which on a mountain in the middle of February in a pretty much deserted part doesn't make sense. <laughs> So all four of these bodies also had severe soft tissue damage to their head and face. Dubinina was missing her tongue, eyes, part of her lips, and as well as facial tissue, and a fragment of her skull bone. Zolotarov had his eyeballs missing, and Kolovatov was missing his eyebrows. And one victim's clothing even showed signs of radiation, which... Again, even more questions. Following the discovery and investigation into the mysterious deaths of the Dyatlov group, there were many different theories and speculations as to the cause behind the deaths. Some believe that the Dyatlov group fell victim to military tests, either of parachute mine exercises or radiological weapons testing, and the initial suppression by the Soviet authorities of files describing the group's disappearance is often used as support of a government cover. But back in the 60s in the USSR, it was pretty much common procedure to conceal information about domestic incidents. So that doesn't have a ton of backing when considering historical context. And the radiation found on the clothing of one of the group's members isn't consistent with results of radiological weapons testing. The level of radiation that would have been caused by testing of weapons would have A, affected all of the group and not just one person, and B, the level of radiation that was detected was not high enough coincide with radiological weapons testing. The explanation behind that is because at the time they used thorium lanterns, which were just radioactive enough to be detectable, but not enough to be harmful. So that's where the radiation on only one of the victim's clothing came from. Other people theorized that the indigenous Mansi people, who were reindeer herders in the area, had attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands. Several Mansi people were interrogated, but the investigation and the autopsies of the bodies indicated that the nature of the deaths did not support the speculation of the Mansi people's involvement. There was no sign of a struggle, only the hiker's footprints were visible, and the soft tissue damage was most likely due to either animals in the area feasting on the soft tissue that would have thawed before the rest of the bodies, or natural decomposition from being buried in a ravine and subjected to running water in the warmer months. The lack of clothing and shoes on the bodies is easily explained by hypothermia. So when you go into hypothermia, it's when your body loses heat faster than it can produce it, and so your internal temperature drops dangerously low. So as you enter the final stages of hypothermia, something called paradoxical undressing occurs because as a person loses their rationality and their nerves are damaged, they feel incredibly and irrationally overheated. So they just start taking off their clothes to try to cool down, even though they are literally freezing to death. So that also explains some of the bodies were found 
in clothing that wasn't theirs because six of the nine were confirmed to have died due to hypothermia, it would make sense that paradoxical undressing had occurred. So the inquest officially ended in May of 1959, and the conclusion drawn from that was that the Dyatlov Pass group had died from an avalanche. But most people did not agree with that explanation. It just didn't add up. The team's encampment that was cut into the snow on the slope of the mountain seemed to have an incline that was too mild to allow an avalanche, and there was no snowfall recorded on the night of February 1st into February 2nd that would have exacerbated the triggering of an avalanche. And it's also reported that most victims of an avalanche die from asphyxiation, not blunt force trauma, and or hypothermia. Forensic data also indicated that there was at least a nine-hour gap from when the group cut the slope for their camp and the eventual avalanche, which also doesn't track with typical avalanche conditions. Usually the triggering event, which would have been cutting the slope for their camp, would have immediately triggered an avalanche. And so the nine hour gap, people are like, nah, it's, it couldn't have been an avalanche. There's no way. That is until this year, 2021, when a geotechnical engineer at ETH Zurich named Alexander Puzrin thawed this cold case. Yeah. I'm funny. Thought this gold case and gave everyone a solid explanation of what prompted the untimely demise of the Dyatlov Pass group. Buzrin, along with Johan Guam, I think I'm saying that name right. It's G-U-A-M-E. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. Johan Guam, head of the Snow Avalanche Simulation Laboratory at EPFL, researched and created analytical models and computer simulations to attempt to replicate the fateful hours that stole the mountaineers' lives. First, they tackled the shallow slope argument, and they uncovered that the slope on Kolatsakol was actually closer to 30 degrees, which is the rule of thumb minimum requirement for avalanches to occur. There were also reports dating back to the initial investigation at the site that there was an underlying layer of snow which would have provided a weak and slippery base that overlying snow could easily slide over. The next thing that this team tackled was the weather, because people didn't know how an avalanche could have occurred if there was no recorded snow between the 1st and 2nd of February. The answer to that is a phenomenon called catabatic winds, which are heavy clumps of freezing air that bring large amounts of snow from higher elevations down toward a lower elevation. So in this case, it brought huge amounts of snow from higher up the mountain down towards the group's campsite. These winds also explain the nine-hour gap between the snow cut and the avalanche. And the computer simulations created by Puzrin and Guam indicate that the avalanche wouldn't have been huge. It probably would have been an ice block roughly 16 feet long, which also explains why there was no typical trace or evidence of an avalanche in the surrounding area. The injuries to the Dyatlov Pass group were still a mystery, though. No one could explain how a 16-foot block of ice could have caused such fatal injuries. But this is where the Queen of Arendelle comes in. For those of you who don't understand that reference... It will make sense in just a minute. Guam, a few years back, was so struck by the accuracy of the snow and how it moved in the movie Frozen that he contacted the animators to see how they pulled it off. And after a visit to Hollywood, Guam modified the exact animation codes from Frozen in order to simulate the impacts avalanches would have on humans. So they also utilized a study from the 70s in which General Motors took 100 cadavers and hit them with different weights at different velocities to simulate what would happen in a car crash. Some of the cadavers used in this General Motors 
study were braced with rigid supports. And that variable was key for Puzeran and Guam in cracking this cold case. The Dyatlov group had placed their bedding on top of their skis, meaning the avalanche struck the mountaineers on an unusually rigid surface. The research models confirmed that the 16-foot block of snow and ice could indeed cause such severe blunt force trauma in this particular situation. This rare avalanche hit the Dyatlov Mountaineers, resulting in severe injuries for some, but not all. The others less harmed carried the injured from the camp, and as they trekked, left behind the more unfortunate members. Which also explains why only three of them died from blunt force trauma, and the other six died from hypothermia. Because they cut open the tents, they fled from the scene of this teeny tiny freak rare avalanche, and then trekked in pitch black with their lanterns only illuminating a little bit in front of them and around them further into the forest and as they trekked they died from the elements. The research and models created by Puzrin and Guam have empirically shown the probability that the deaths of the nine Dyatlov Pass victims were caused by a very rare but very likely avalanche. And while some still may prefer to believe that the group was killed by a yeti or perhaps the Soviet government, I'm sticking to the belief that the former, thank you Frozen 2, Queen of Arendelle, solved a 62-year-old cold case, not without the help and diligent work of masterminds Alexander Puzrin and Johan Guam. And that is the unbelievable story of the Dyatlov Pass incident. So I hope everyone was just as entertained with my storytelling as I was researching this because I had heard of the Dyatlov Pass incident, but I never really knew what it was. I just knew that it was super freaky and nobody knew what happened and it was super unexplainable. And there was all this like lore and confusion around it. And I then Googled Dyatlov Pass incident and immediately found uh, several articles talking about the uh, graphics and the coding behind Frozen being utilized to uncover the mystery of the Dyatlov Pass incident. So that was crazy. And reading through the incidents and the reports of this was just like baffling because at the time it made sense why nobody knew what the hell happened because there were nine people that just never came back. Nobody heard from them. They disappeared. They were supposed to be doing this really impressive and intricate and uh, advanced trek into these mountains. And I'm sure everybody was like pumped for them and excited for them. They were mid-20s students that decided to do this. So I'm sure that even added more of like desperation to figure out what happened. And I mean, you come up on this scene and you see that tents were cut open from the inside which is not something that usually happens you know unless you're trying to escape something there are no bodies there and then you search and you finally find two and then it takes you four months five months to find the others like it's just crazy some people might still not believe that the Dyatlov Pass 9 were killed by a 16-foot block of ice but I'm gonna trust the science on this one and trust that Puzrin and Guam are vastly smarter than I am and have done their due diligence to prove this. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much about all I have to say for the episode. Um, but this is where I'm going to get into 
a little chit-chat, a little stream of consciousness, if you will, to include at the very end of the episode, because I think it's fun, and I like talking, and I'm giving everyone an option now to end the episode if you don't want to hear it, if you only care about the story and not my personal feelings or life. Here's your chance. Goodbye. Forever. Not forever. Till next episode. Hopefully next week. But, you know, college and stuff. Okay, now for those of you true fans and people obligated to listen to the full thing because they either are dating me or are related to me or are my friends, but you guys I'm giving a pass to. Here's where we get into the chit-chat. Um, it's one-sided because this is a podcast and I can't hear what you're saying and it's also delayed by, you know, at minimum a day. So there's that. Uh, here we go. Um, I don't really have any recommendations in terms oh I do that's a lie I'm not reading any books right now um other than things that I'm supposed to be reading for class um but I am watching a series on Netflix called Wentworth and it's an Australian show about a prison a women's prison so it's basically uh, an Australian orange is the new black but way better like vastly better it is so so interesting uh but major trigger and content warning there is uh drug use and mental health things and death and nudity a little bit here and there so watch with discretion but it's oh my god it's so good my mom and I sat and watched like six episodes in one night we were like this looks good and we stayed up till 3 a.m because we just could not stop watching and mom if you didn't pay attention to my text I did finish season one uh, so I'm ready to talk about it and start season two. So there's eight seasons, by the way, which feels like a lot, but it goes so quickly. These I think, and they're only like 35, maybe 40 minutes long. So they're not some, you know, hour and a half long atrocities that you're like, oh my God, I can't finish this. Oh, another thing that I might as well put out here because this will be shared on a larger platform than like me talking to my classes. So I am in an audio production class and our final project is to mix um, songs, recorded live recorded songs by bands in Fort Collins area. So if you or anyone you know are in a band, uh, hit me up, send an email to you're not going to believe this pod at gmail.com and say, hey, you should see if I can come because I don't think we have our bands uh, squared away yet and your music will be published and you'll have a cute little EP and it'll be great. It'll, you'll get to work with us. And it's free. You get free recording time. Free studio time. So if anybody has anybody they know or if you yourself are in a band, let me know. And I'll see what I can do. I make no promises, though. No guarantees. So I'm going to take this opportunity to 157% steal an idea from another podcast from My Favorite Murder. They do this thing. This is where the explicit comes in. Uh, hashtag my fucking hooray to sort of bring a little light and joy and happiness into the world in such horrible times and to celebrate people's little and big accomplishments. So I'm not going to take any from their social media because I feel like that's crossing the line a little bit more, but I will share a couple of my fucking hoorays. I think it's important to be proud of yourself. Even if you fake it, eventually your brain just says, oh, that's something I'm supposed to do, and you just do it. My fucking hooray is that I'm I'm starting this podcast, actually. I have said I've wanted to do my own podcast for a really long time now. I've made a couple episodes here and there for class projects. 
and I finally decided that I was going to do it. And so I asked for a microphone for Christmas. I got it. Thank you, Mom. And now we're here, and this is exciting. I didn't get discouraged, even after I realized how much work it actually is to start and host and upload a podcast, but I'm doing it. I'm doing the thing. And I guess my final hooray is that this is my last semester of college. I'm going to graduate in May. And that's scary and exciting and confusing and a whole lot of other feelings all wrapped up together in a little, I don't know, happy meal of life, I guess. I've worked hard. I've had a lot of crazy stuff happen to me in my life. And I'm still here and I'm still doing it. And I'm about to meet this goal of mine. Those are my hoorays. Feel free to send in your fucking hoorays. You don't have to include the curse word if you don't want to. You know, that's not for everybody, and that's okay. I gave ample warning, though, so you can't be mad at me. I would like to know what your fucking hoorays are, everyone listening. That's all I really have to say. Um, thank you for tuning in. And for those of you who stuck all the way to the end, thanks for listening. And did you believe it? This has been a Sunnyside production. Benjamin, do you have anything to add?